Well, I had planned to be launching us into the book of Acts. I talked about that a lot last semester, but I felt so strongly that God wanted us to be opening the book of Acts as we open our new building on Hamilton Road. And so we're going to put that one on pause until we come together in that space in March. And we're going to do the first ever sermon series in our church on our church. It's called ACC Is. And the reason why we're doing this is because our leadership has felt increasingly burdened the past few years about church membership. A church is a family. It's a living organism. And so the word membership has different meanings to different denominations and different backgrounds. It's not really a club that you join. It's a living body. And so when we talk about being a family member, I've always had a mixed relationship with church membership. But at this point, as we've become a church that so many people have come to either check out or come on the back end of COVID because this is the live stream that you watched or come because you saw the building going up and you're like, I want to get in before the building finishes so it doesn't look like I'm just here because the building looks so cool. And hey, we see you and we're glad you're here. And so we, we've had a lot of people come since 2020 for mixed reasons. Some of them good or bad. I, I don't really know what to make of the reasons why people have been drawn here, but I do know we've got to have clarity about who we are as a church if we are going to get more serious about church membership. Now, in the past, membership at ACC has looked like, hey, if you've been attending, you've been given here, you're in a community group here, you've been serving here, just sign like a document online and let us know because we don't want that to be that formalized or it to be some sort of a test or some sort of an interview that you have to go into, but we do think being a member of a local church is super important. Now, if you're here from out of town or you're watching online and you're literally about to click off and go, okay, it's a membership series. I'm not a part of that church. So just stay with me because this is not a membership class by any means. This is a moment for us collectively to agree on a common identity in a season that we cannot afford to forget it. This is a moment for us to out loud say, This is what Auburn Community Church is all about because some of you have never had that. And as much as I love our Welcome to Church lunch, we have one today after the second gathering. 68 people will be there. And in that lunch, I get to share out loud, hey, here's the story of how this church started. Here's how the leadership governance works. And if you're like, I've been coming forever, but I never got to come to that lunch. You can even listen to my little spiel that I do at that lunch on our YouTube page. There's a video on there right now. That's not what this moment is. This moment is about us taking an opportunity to go Here's the church God has already called us to be and what it would look like for you to become a part of it. So in the near future, at ACC, we will be zeroing out our membership. And what that means is, like me and Courtney, our family's no longer a member here anymore. And we're going to start from scratch and go, hey, now that we've clarified who we are as a church and what the expectation is for you as a member, do you want to be a part of this body of believers? And no pressure, especially during this series, it would be good if some of you were listening and going, you know what? I came here for X reason, but now that he's articulated out loud what this church is all about, that's not really where my family feels called, or that's not really where my spirit aligns. That is such a healthy thing. The body is diverse for a reason, and what a blessing it is to live in a city where there are so many incredible local churches that you could be a part of. Amen? There's a lot of them. We're just one of them. But God has done something so clear, and so this is not, by the way, a vision series. 
Nothing wrong with that, but the idea of vision is, oh, let's let the leader get up there and paint a picture of where we might be five years from now if we do X, Y, and Z. That's not what this is. This is not a vision series. This is a reality series. I'm not describing the church I hope we become. I'm describing out loud the church we already are. Like, this is what you're sitting in right now. And these are non-negotiables that we don't want to change when we make the jump to a new building. And there is no season where it's easier to forget who you are than when you've been a nomadic church or you've been a church that barely pulls off meeting in a shopping center and who knows how all of you are even in this building right now. Like this is awesome and this is amazing, but there is a dangerous tendency and temptation to start to veer from the main things that God has been putting on the inside of this church just because we built a new building. Now, if you're joining us at another location, you're like, this doesn't apply to me at all. Actually, this applies to you way more than I can fully describe as an introduction to week one. Because if this is the church that you're a part of from afar, these things are the non-negotiables no matter where you're gathering with us from. So are y'all excited to hear this at all? Okay, I was so nervous because I was like, ah, oh, they don't want to hear a, a series about who we are as a church. Like, we've never done something like this before. But as I talked to people in the body over the last week, people are like, we have needed that for years. So I want to articulate five non-negotiables. You can call them core values. You can call them cultural distinctives. You can call them personality traits. I... I I would literally just say out loud, these are the things that we are without even trying. This is what ACC is all about. And maybe through the course of this series, when we do zero out membership and we do start a formal process for joining the church, we'll have this series to look back on and go, okay, if that's what it's all about, then I know what I'm committing to and I know what I'm jumping in on. Are you ready for week one? Here we go. Part one of five, you don't have to write all of them down. We're going to spend week one or we're going to spend one week on each one of these things, but part one is called the presence of God. The presence of God. At ACC, we are all about the presence of God, Jesus-centered zeal, countercultural formation, tender-hearted compassion, and multi-generational family. Each one of those phrases will mean something new to you by the end of this series, but it all starts and ends with the presence of God. We want to be where God is. And when I say that, it sounds complicated because you're like, God's everywhere. David says in the Psalms, if I ascend to the heights, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. There's nowhere I can go to hide from your spirit, and that's true. But when we talk about the presence of God, we're talking about the manifested closeness of God, the nearness of God, where his voice is discerned and obeyed where his embrace is felt and comforting, where you know God is here. And the humbling reality about the last eight and a half years that I can say, and no one in here can call me a liar because if you've watched what God has done, you know it's true. God is here. That's what's happening here. God has decided in his sovereign will to pour out his spirit on a movement in Auburn, Alabama in our day while we live here through us and you're sitting in it. God's presence is on what we're doing here. And it is not because of a formula of doing church 
or a system that we run where we sing songs that sound like this, and Miles says it like this, and our groups function like this, and our missions department goes like this, and our local outreach partners function like this, and if it all just kind of comes together, it just works like a well-oiled machine. No, this is not a well-oiled machine because the church, the local church, is not a Fortune 500 company. The local church is an opportunity to be ushered into the presence of Almighty God. The local church is not a country club. It's not a space to come meet new friends and hang out with new people who you're in the same season as. Although that is a benefit, the local church is an opportunity to lock arms with brothers and sisters in Christ and have an encounter with the God who made everything and loves you intimately. And God is here. God's here when we sing songs. God's here when we preach sermons. God's here on worship nights when we feel his manifested presence so clearly in the room. But God's there when we gather together at meals. God's there when families are deciding to form their kids into the image of Jesus instead of as a reflection of culture. God's there as we're sending missionaries all over the world, some of them to the hardest places where Jesus has not even been named yet. God is there as we are serving in our local community and giving away resources. Like if you want to know what is it about Auburn Community Church that they're trying to tap into, make no mistake about it, it is the presence of God. That's it. And the second we veer from that, I promise you, there will be a level of power that is withdrawn from what God is doing here if we start to veer from this being about the presence. One of the most telling moments of what I'm describing happened this past year on Easter Sunday at Auburn Arena. Anybody watch that basketball game last night? Man, energy in that space is just, it's infectious. It's unbelievable. I love that that game wasn't even close. Like, I, I've, close games are fun, but I just love when we kill people. It's fun. <laughs> I don't know if it's just me. But this year, like knowing that in that space, the church that you are a part of, was able to gather on Easter Sunday the largest church gathering in the history of this city. And, and when we did, this is a telling moment, we began that gathering with one of our elders, who's in his 50s, walking on stage, welcoming everybody to church, and with tears in his eyes, he said, Jesus is risen and nothing else matters. We are here to encounter the presence of God, and as great as all this is, if God's not here, there is no value to this. And I was standing on the front row, and I was just, I could barely breathe because I was going, that's it. That's it. You guys know, in the largest church gathering our city has ever put together, in the coolest venue we could possibly be having church, do you know how easy it would have been to make that moment about us? Do you know how easy it would have been that moment to put like a hype pregame video together that had like blinking crosses and he's alive and, and do something that everybody's like, whoa, the Easter opener, wow, that's so great. We sent, and no offense to David Fickner, a man in his mid-50s up on stage to go, hey guys, if God's not here, this means nothing, so let's pray. And then we sang How Great Thou Art with no instruments. 
Now, I'm not saying, oh, we, we, oh, well, stylistically, we did something cool. No, I was saying that was such a, a statement of who we are all about as a church. This is not about a hype demonstration of a way of encountering God. And this is not about patting ourselves on the back because we've grown a lot. This is about no matter how big or small, no matter what context, if it's in the arena or if it's in Ham Wilson Livestock Arena that doesn't even exist anymore, we don't care. Wherever God is, that's where we want to be. And wherever the presence of God is manifested, oh my goodness, all we want to do is overflow out of a heart that's in close proximity with him. So 2023, what's it all about for us as a church? Intimacy with God. We don't want to miss it from now forward, and I don't want you to miss it from now forward in your life. You're one week into 2023. I hope you're doing great on all the things you said you were going to do differently. Courtney and I have eaten so clean this week, several workouts, Apple Watch is going off like, you just had your best week ever. I'm like, yeah, because it's the first week of a new year. It's awesome. It's awesome that you're going to do 21 days of prayer and fasting if you've committed to that. That's great. But listen, there is no endeavor you are going to take on this year that competes with the value of living in close proximity with the presence of God. Are you living out of the overflow of knowing that you are invited into an intimate relationship with the God of the universe who bridged the gap between you and him by sending his son to die as a sin offering for you so that you might become the righteousness of God, full of the Holy Spirit, on mission, full of joy for his glory for all of eternity? Is is that what your year is all about? And there's some of you within the sound of my voice who need to get honest enough to go, no, it's not. Because I know I can be preaching it right now, a couple people are amening me, and you're like, oh, just by proxy, just by being in the crowd, I feel like I'm a part of it. No, you're not, if you're not living it. And we're going to see that when we look at the people of God in the story of the Exodus, where Moses leads the people of God out of captivity and slavery in Egypt, and he's leading them into the promised land. And watch this. There's a moment, because of a terrible mistake that they make, There's a moment where God says, okay, I'm going to give you the land, but I'm not going with you. My presence is withdrawn. You can have the land that you always dreamed of. I'm going to send an angel to go with you, but because of your sin, I cannot be in close proximity to you. And the people of God respond the way we should respond, which is, if your presence doesn't go with us, we don't want to go. We're going to see that today in the scriptures. Did you bring your Bible? Starting 2023 out strong. If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up in the lobby, hold it up in Birmingham, show it off, show it off. Okay, a lot, lot has happened over Christmas break. Okay. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. We'll save that one for next week once most of our college students are back. Exodus 33 and 34 are two of the most famous chapters of the entire Old Testament. This is when God appears to Moses and his glory is on display. But what's interesting about this story is as awesome as it is, it happens right after one of the worst moments in the Old Testament. Exodus 32, if you look at the heading of that, it might be called the golden calf in your Bible. That's because as Israel left Egypt, keep in mind, crossed over a sea on dry ground, sea comes down on the army that's chasing them, all those plagues that brought them away from Pharaoh. I mean, they've seen the miraculous hand of God. So then there's this moment where Moses is supposed to go up on Mount Sinai and receive the law, the Ten Commandments from God. And as he receives the law, he's got to receive this because the people have to know, hey, if we're going to go live in the land, we have to have a way of life that's agreed upon, a unified identity and understanding across the board, but he's gone a lot longer than they were planning on him being gone. 
And so they turn to Aaron and they go, Aaron, we need someone to worship. We, you need to make us a God. We'll put some of our gold into like a fire and, and maybe we, we can create an idol to worship together. And they create what is known as the golden calf. They start a worship service that's really like a wild party. Many of them get drunk. They start feasting and worshiping. And watch this, crediting the golden calf with bringing them out of slavery in Egypt. So Moses has to come down the mountain in judgment of the people to get them under control. And before you hear that story and go, that is so dumb. Why would you create something to worship when God just did all those miracles in front of you? And why do you want it through an idol? Oh yeah, the same person who carries a golden calf in their pocket every day of their life. We're all really good at worshiping created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. And so before you judge them, because this was a physical manifestation of their idolatry, make sure you see we are just like them. And they're worshiping the golden calf. God comes down with judgment. The, the men who are still true to God have to run through the camp and kill 3,000 people with swords just to get the party under control. And then there's this moment in Exodus 33 where God tells them what's going to happen next. After they've turned to other gods in idolatry and after Moses comes down the mountain. Exodus chapter 33, verse 1, if you're there, say I'm there. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. You might read that and go, oh, wow, God's really judgmental and petty. He's like, y'all can go, but I'm not going. I'm staying home. You do realize this is an act of God's mercy, that he's not destroying them completely. Like, oh, your next message to your people is, hey, you can take the land right after they're unfaithful to you to a degree that's so disgusting and grotesque. Your response is, okay, you can still have the blessing you wanted, but you can't have me. I'm not going with you. And even his withdrawing of his presence, it's for their good. Because he's going, if I'm next to you, my holiness, your sinfulness, you'll become obliterated on that journey. So send my angel, you'll get your land and you can go, but you go without me. Look at verse four. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, tell the Israelites, you are a stiff necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. This rarely gets pointed out, but when Israel crossed over that sea on dry ground, they weren't all wearing their slave clothes. When Israel left Egypt, they actually plundered Egypt before they left. So they were decked out in Egyptian gold as they were crossing over on dry ground. The idea was God wanted his people to not just be freed from slavery, but to plunder those who had oppressed them and enter in to the promised land decked out in riches. He wanted this to be like a triumphant entry into what they were called to do. But because of their sin, it's gone from a procession of triumph to a moment of grief and sorrow because their God, Yahweh, has said, I'm no longer going to cover you with my presence. And they're mourning, rightfully so. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 7, now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. 
Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Powerful. Moses had the space to meet with God. The tent of meeting. This is a picture of the tabernacle, which would become a space specifically designed to house the presence of God for the people of God. But when they're on the move, it's just a tent that gets put up. And it says when Moses would go to meet with God, there was a cloud that would fall on the tent. Keep in mind, the only way the people of God knew where to go after they got out of Egypt was by the presence of God that was a cloud by day, fire by night. So how did the people of God get where they were going? They would follow the presence of God. They would react to what God reveals. But when Moses would go to meet with God and someone would be inquiring of the Lord, there would be a cloud that fell on the tent and everyone who's not a part of this moment is watching with reverence and awe and worshiping at the sight. But it says, as reverent as the sight was, God would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. In other words, these are not two generals exchanging battle plans for next steps. These are two friends exchanging wishes with an intimate closeness to each other that looks like the closeness God called Adam and Eve to walk with him in the garden carrying in the first place. As one speaks to a friend, the Lord would speak to Moses in the tent. Now watch this prayer, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me Lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses has a conversation with God. And he says, you've been talking about this angel who's going to lead us, and, and that's great, but you haven't t told me who that was. I, I want to know your ways. When Moses says that to God, that is not a, I want to take a class on who you are. That is Moses asking God to reveal personal things about who God is in a way that he hasn't revealed before. I want to know you deeply, intimately. I want more of an inside view to who you are. And God says, and you got to feel the weight of this, in verse 14, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Side note for those of you who nerd out on Old Testament chiasms like I do, this is actually the middle of a super, super, super long chiasm. I don't have time to go into the details of it. And if you don't know what that means, you need to go back and listen to our previous teaching on this. But in the Bema Discipleship Podcast, which I've recommended, B-E-M-A, phenomenal podcast, he talks about how the whole formation of the tabernacle is one large chiasm. And the midpoint is Exodus 33, verse 14, where God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. There are a few promises God can make you that carry the level of comfort and weight that that one does. I'm with you. 
and I'm going to give you rest. Now, that rest is indicative of the land they will be going into, but it's also indicative of the starved soul that a human needs more than anything to be at rest in the sight of their maker and in a right relationship with him. And he's going, I'll answer your prayer. I know you're not happy about an angel going with you instead of me. So here's what I'll do for you, Moses. My presence, but notice he says this, we'll go with you. But Moses is not ready to just accept that ask and answer of a yes. He's got another question in verse 15. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. He says, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. And Moses goes, that's not enough. If your presence doesn't go with us, with all of us, we don't want to go from here. And then he says, how else will all the other nations know that these are your people unless you're with us? Here's what what Moses does. He ties the presence of God to God's glory among the nations. We're going to get more into that as this series unfolds. But God is telling a story cover to cover through the scriptures and through all of human history that's about him being known throughout all people groups on planet earth. And Moses goes, if you're going to be known by us, you're going to have to come with us. And God says, okay, I'll do the very thing you have asked. Question, did God just change his mind? Because we we like to say God is a God who never changes his mind. Once he sets it up, it is what it is. But didn't he just say earlier in the same chapter, I'm not going with you guys because if I go, I'll destroy you. It's a trick question. No, God does not change his mind. Yes, he does change his heart in this story. Why? Because prayer can bend the heart of God. Moses is conversationally talking to a sovereign God, and through his prayer, God's heart is moved. What does that tell you? Yes, God is in total control of the universe, and yes, he's got a plan, and no effort of humanity can ever thwart that plan. But here's what you need to know about our God. He's a relational God. At ACC, we call it sovereign contingency, where God's in total control of the story. At the same time, mankind has a role, and one of those main roles is to go to him in prayer and participate in the story of God. So through Moses' prayer... God's heart is bent toward him, and he says, okay, I know I told you before I'm not going, but now I'm going because you prayed. You should be getting really excited about 21 days of prayer right now because you need to understand this isn't about just a meditation exercise to get at peace in the presence of God. No, this is about real events and real people being impacted by your prayers. This is about the fact that God moves on the other side of prayer. If there is any bio in the history of our church that we could tell and honor God, it would be this. People prayed, God moved. Where people go to God humbly in prayer, God has the capacity to turn his heart and do something brand new. And he can do that in your family. He can do that in your story. And he's done that in and through this church. And he's going to do it for the people of God right there. Now, everybody look up here and do not miss this. This is where, if you're just reading this story, it should end. Like Moses was bold enough to go, hey, I want to know you deeper. And God goes, okay, my presence will go with you. You go, ah, not just me. We don't want to go without you. Okay, I'm going with y'all. But Moses has saved his most bold prayer for the very next verse. It's the boldest prayer in the entire Bible outside of the prayers of Jesus. And it's a simple statement. Then Moses said, verse 18, now 
show me your glory. Now show me your glory. What, what does that mean? That means, okay, you said yes to those two. Might as well go for it. I want to see the full expression of your splendor tangibly. Like all of your goodness and power combined, I want on display for me in a way that my senses can discern in a way that you've never done for a human being before. That's the ask. Now show me your glory. I'm going to spoil God's response for you and just tell you, God says yes. Y'all, keep in mind, this story is right after Exodus 32 when the people of God made a golden calf and sinned in a way that was absolutely disgusting. And Moses is not without fault. So you hear God saying things like, I've found favor with you and I know you by name. You hear that and you're like, well, God favors Moses because he's obedient while the rest of the people are obedient. No, Moses actually broke the 10 commandments on his way down the mountain when he saw them worshiping the golden calf. He had a major anger problem that never really fully got worked out. And it's why he doesn't get to go into the promised land at the end of the story. Like Moses is imperfect going, I want to see you and know you in a way that nobody else has known you before. And God goes, yeah, I'm good for that. Here's, here's the whole message today and cover to cover theme of the Bible. When people seek God, God shows up. When people draw near to God, God draws near to them. If you create a space in your life for God, he will show up and fill it. The question is not whether or not he's present, the question is whether or not you are. We have, and we say this all the time, we experience in our lives as much of God as we are willing to make room for. And so the endeavor of a Christian and the endeavor of our church is so simple. It's one statement, and it is the chief goal and aim of your life this year. Here it is. Create space for the presence of God. If you create space, he'll fill it. If you will build for God availability in your life, I'm telling you by the power of the Holy Spirit, he'll come and he'll do something unlikely. Part of the reason why we've experienced what we've experienced is simply because we were bold enough to ask God to do it. How many things in your life are you shortchanging yourself on simply because you don't have a relational dynamic to your approach to God where you can go, God, boldly and humbly, despite all my issues, I'm asking you and calling you to help me in this area. And I'm telling you, no, God is not a vending machine, but he is a good father and he likes to reveal more of who he is to any child of his who's ready and willing to make the ask. If you seek God, you will find him. If you knock, the door will be open. And if you draw near, you'll notice he's already drawing near to you. Key thing I want you to get from this story, and I love that Moses is like, if you don't go with us, we don't want the land. Oh, the land flowing with milk and honey. Canaan was unbelievable. And the people of God are still mourning. Why? Because for them, the goal wasn't to end up in Canaan with a prosperous life. The goal was close proximity to God. And the same is true about our church and the same has to be true about your life. God is the goal. He's the prize. He's the treasure. He's the mechanism and the end game. He is who we want more of. 
So our success collectively as a church has nothing to do with how big or wide this gets or what the building or buildings or campuses look like. That is not what this is about. This is about whether or not we're living in close proximity to the God of the universe. It's about whether or not the spirit of God is covering what we are doing. And your life is the same way. I do not care how much money or how much fitness success or what happens with your kids or everything that you're getting into this year and trying to accomplish. Actually, I'll take that back. To a certain degree, I do care. I want you to have an awesome year. I want things to go well in your life. But that compared to whether or not you're walking in a real relationship with a God who's made himself knowable. He's the goal. The number one endeavor of your life is asking the question, am I living in close proximity to the presence of God? Is he close to me? And if you live out of the overflow of your close proximity to God, he will flow into every other area of your life. Now, everybody look up here. Do not miss the end of the sermon because this is where I could go in like 15 different directions. This is all about nearness to God. And when we talk about what does it mean to create a space for God, most of the time we veer into the direction of distraction. And I could. I could talk about, hey, you're giving so much of your attention to these things on your phone or these things in your life. You need to delete this and divert over here and let God fill that space in your life. And that's healthy. That's good. I could take this in the direction of like laziness and apathy and just go, come on guys, let's become disciplined enough to go after more of God and we will experience so much more of God than we're even prepared to hold. It's gonna be amazing. Come on and kind of conjure up a level of emotional discipline that may last a week or two. And we could, we could do that and it'd be fine. But I actually believe the main wall between you and the presence of God is not how much time you spend on your phone or how lazy or apathetic you feel. I actually believe the top barrier between you and the presence of God is the same across the board. It's what you think about when you think about God and what you assume God thinks about when he thinks about you. In a word, the wall between you and the presence of God is shame. Shame. Do you know what's true about you And if God is as holy as the scriptures claim that he is, and if being in his presence is about his perfection and awesome wonder, then where I've been and what I've thought and what I'm carrying compared to who he is is a bad combination. And I agree with what he said earlier in the chapter. Maybe it's best if he doesn't go with us. But here's what's so awesome about what Moses finds out. When Moses presses in, for more of God and says, now show me your glory, he finds out why God went from saying, I'm not coming with you because I might destroy you, to saying, I am coming with you and I'm actually gonna bless you more than I told you I was gonna bless you originally. What is it that God reveals to Moses? This will rock your world. When the glory of God showed up for Moses, he says, you gotta hide in a cleft in a rock. I got to put my hand over it because you can't see my face. It would totally destroy you. We don't want that to happen. But you can see my back and you can discern things about me physically that no human being ever has. It's a powerful moment. But the most lasting impact of Moses' encounter with God is not what he sees. It's actually what he hears. Have you ever thought about what did Moses see when he saw the glory of God? The lasting impression of that encounter was not his sight. 
It was the audible voice that he heard. And here's what he heard if you want to look at it in Exodus 34, verse 5. I promise if you tune in, this will rock your world. It says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. When God walked by Moses, the powerful impression was the proclamation of his name. The Lord, the Lord. That's a bad translation. It's Yahweh, Yahweh. It's God distinguishing himself in a world that was all about little g, other gods. And God says, okay, I'm going to tell you point blank who I am. You ready? The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Can we put those six things on the screen? Y'all, this is who God is. This is the one whose presence we enjoy every time we get together. And I want you to keep this in mind too. God doesn't have to be any way. I know you grew up hearing that God is all loving and all forgiving and, all, and you felt like that was owed to you. It is not. You know the creator of the universe can be whoever he wants to be. So when God says this, he could have said, the Lord, the Lord, the petty and angry God, ready to punish and separate from all who would defy his word. He could have said that. Could have said a lot of different things. When God revealed the true nature of his character, he said, the first thing you need to know about me is I'm compassionate and gracious. Like when people who are in need draw near to me, I just can't help but help and jump in. And I love like bestowing more gifts on them than they're even worthy of. What else is true about you, God? I'm just slow to anger. Like it takes a lot, a lot to get me angry. In fact, I've got more patience than you could conjure up in a thousand lifetimes. What else is true about you, God? I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I'm maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And you read the last one, punishes the children to the third and fourth generation. Yes, our God is just. Our God will punish sin. But when you compare the score, three or four generations, to maintaining love to thousands, the score is God's mercy, 1,000, God's judgment, three. This is who God is. Yes, he judges sin but way more than that. He is a God who forgives and draws his people into his presence regardless of how messed up they are. That is who our God is. I was trying to describe this to my daughters. We're reading a new Bible at night where it's like, it's, it's, it's just a little bit beyond their age. It's super deep. I'll, I'll post it on social media so y'all can know what it is. I think it's really good to teach kids. But we have this time every night now that's question time, where after we read the story, it's like you can ask daddy anything about God. And they know the more questions they ask, the longer they get to stay up. So we read about Adam and Eve the other night, and it was like question time, 15 different questions that are all really deep questions. But Aniston came up with this one that I was like, oh my goodness, that is... Yes, that is the, that's the exact question somebody who knows the scriptures should be asking. She said, if Adam and Eve knew God, why did they hide? 
And I was like, what do you mean? And, and she was like, well, after they sinned, they hid from God and he had to come find them. If they knew him, why didn't they just tell him and go to him? And I told her it's because they didn't just believe a lie about the apple. They believed a lie about the character of the one who made them. And so they're hiding from the one whose very nature is to help them in the exact situation that they're in. And you say, well, when God showed up to Adam and Eve, didn't he pronounce a judgment? Yeah, and the worst judgment was on the serpent and a promise that the heel of man would crush the serpent's head. And he covered them with fig leaves, covering their shame. Our God, in his presence, if we could catch a vision of who he really is, we could knock down the main thing that keeps us from drawing near to God every day of our lives. And it's the assumptions we make about who he is and who we are in his sight. God is more patient and gracious and compassionate than you and I could ever dream up in our wildest imaginations. And every single time you as a sinful human being have ever dared to enter into the presence of God. You need to understand this. You're not in the Old Testament where Moses goes into a tent and a cloud falls. You're in the New Testament, post cross and blood of Jesus, resurrection, Holy Spirit. Like when you draw near to God, if you are in Christ, there has never been an inclination toward you that wasn't love and lavish forgiveness and freedom and mercy and power and availability and new beginnings and new dreams and new possibilities. Like God is more loving and patient and gracious than you could ever imagine. And if you and I would actually learn to believe the truth about him, it's not harder for God to draw near to you because of your sin. It's actually the truest demonstration of who he is. And so what does this mean for us as a church? It means our top priority is desperation for God. Like if this is all about the presence of God, it's all about understanding our need and his supply. It's all about understanding our depravity and his love for us in that state. What we have to do at Auburn Community Church is stay humble before the throne of God but stay confident enough to remember that we belong there because of Jesus. Daniel prayed this prayer and I'll leave you with this. He said, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. What draws us near to God is not once we got all our resolutions and goals figured out. What draws us near to God is how merciful he is as the truest demonstration of his character. So here's what I want you to do today, and I want you to dare to do it every day of this year and every day, honestly, for the rest of your life. I want you to dare to believe that God is who he reveals himself to be in the scripture, and that despite all of your issues, you are not only welcomed in his presence, you are wanted in his presence. There's nothing he wants more than you with all of your issues to draw as close as you possibly can to where he is and enjoy being a child of God. So that's what we're gonna do as we take communion. You can get your elements out for communion right now. We're just gonna enjoy the mercy of God. Every week we remember the body and the blood of Jesus 
because of the very things that I'm talking about. If you didn't get one, you can just raise your hand right where you are. We got several team members all throughout here that'll bring those to you. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, this is a moment for you to just sit and reflect on what you have heard. Got a couple of hands uh, throughout the back if y'all wanna make sure they got some. As you take communion today, set yourself up for these next 21 days well. Like, let's confess our sins to God and let's stop playing the shame game. Let's stop waiting till we get our lives together to be confident that God wants to move in a new way. Let's believe boldly again in the character of the God of the universe. And I believe his presence is going to fall in a brand new way. Husbands, pray over your wives as always. We'll sing in just one second, but let's enjoy the mercy of God.